problem is sometimes we conflate all these stories together, and that's a mistake we don't want to make today. The woman here, it's a unique story to Luke. She's not identified as Mary Magdalene. There's another story, that's the Mary one, where, where Mary anoints Jesus. This is a different story. This is a unique story, separate, only found in the Gospel of Luke. In the ancient world, the houses of well-to-do people were sometimes built with courtyards, and we find this in archaeology. And the well-to-do people would, in the courtyard, put a fountain or maybe some kind of picnic area where you could not only access it from the house, but if you poked your head around the corner, you could actually walk in from the outside. And that seems to be what's pictured here in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is a visiting rabbi. He's preaching all over the area. A man named Simon the Pharisee, he's well-to-do in the area, he's a religious leader, he invites Jesus to his house. Uh, Again, very common to invite the visiting rabbi to the house. Jesus shows up, and what you would see at one of these settings is they would eat there in the courtyard together. They'd be reclined, as you know, kind of leaning on each other, and anybody from town that wanted to hang out could kind of walk into the courtyard and just eavesdrop on the conversations. Some people call this a symposium. Others call this just a meal after the Sabbath. You and I, we kind of like our privacy. You know, you're in a restaurant, you're like, give me away from, you know, give me a table like in the corner by ourselves. In the ancient world, there's no privacy at all. In these communities, everybody knows everybody's business. And you could literally walk into these courtyards and just listen to the conversation taking place, even at a private residence. So Jesus visits the house of Simon the Pharisee. There are three points of hospitality that Simon does not offer Jesus. The first one is the most common that we know. That's the washing of the feet. They don't have keds or mizunos or anything like that in the ancient world. They either went barefoot or with these sandals. They didn't protect the feet very well. And as you walked on those dusty roads, and don't forget, all kinds of things take place on those roads. There's animals. They would just throw things in the street. The feet would just get caked with dirt and dust and debris. And so you'd go into somebody's house, and they would bring out a big basin of water, and somebody would wash the feet. At the minimum, you'd be able to wash your feet by yourself. It's a way to take a little bit of refreshment. The second thing the host would do is kiss the cheek. Kiss each side. They'd kiss the head. You can see this in other passages in Scripture. And the third thing that might take place is the anointing with olive oil. Uh, You'd have uh, the, the, the sun is just baking down on people. It's almost, like, um, it's almost like a first century chapstick <laughs> or something, some kind, of, some kind of lotion where you just kind of, just something you would offer your guests that you might refreshen them a little bit. And so we find that Simon the Pharisee here, uh, for whatever reason, rudeness of his behavior, doesn't offer any of these to Jesus. He doesn't wash his feet. He doesn't kiss him when he comes in. He doesn't anoint him with olive oil. That makes us wonder what the motives of Simon Pharisee are to begin with. You can't imagine him inviting a guest rabbi to the house and not offering this manner of of hospitality. He doesn't seem to try to trap Jesus for questions. Perhaps he's just doing a who's who kind of party. He's suspicious of Jesus, or maybe he doesn't have a lot of respect for Jesus. That's the kind of feeling we get in this text. And we're told in verse 37, next verse, Behold, A woman of the city who is a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisees, brought an alabaster flax of ointment. Behold, that means, now get this, all right? Again, she's a sinner. Could be an adulterous woman. Could be the wife of a dishonest kind of official in town. 
Church history has almost unanimously taken this to understand that she's a prostitute there in the city of Nain. And behold, you know what behold means? Behold means you didn't expect this. Watch out. She walked in. And I mentioned this at the opening. The most impressive thing about this is not really that she anoints the feet of Jesus. The most impressive thing is that she pokes her face into the courtyard to begin with. And we're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. She anoints Jesus. She stands behind him, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet, and anointed them with oil. The imagery here is very rich in what beautiful language Luke uses. Notice, first of all, it says that they were reclining. And so they wouldn't sit in chairs like we do today. They'd kind of recline. The way they would recline, it's kind of hard to picture, you would have your, your elbow and your face closer to the table, and your feet would go out this way, almost like your five-year-old when they're watching TV, you know? That's how the men in the first century would eat. they kind of lean on maybe on the side and eat. And so the woman is coming up behind Jesus. That's the picture. That's why she gets to his feet so easily. And it says here that she shed tears. Now, this is not the regular word for crying in the New Testament. This is the word breko. It's a really rich Greek word. It means that it, it's the same word for rain showers. You know that verse where it says the, it, it rains on the just and the unjust? That's the word here for tears. She is weeping uncontrollably. Tears are falling out of her eyes. This is not one of those sniffles and you wipe your eye and you say, no, it's just allergies, I'm not really crying. This is uncontrollable crying that's taken place. And kissing here, kissing here is the same word that's used when the father uh, kisses the prodigal and vice versa. It's a big reception, not the regular word for kiss, not the greeting kind of kiss you would give someone, but she's kissing the feet of Jesus just over and over. And the word here for perfume, this alabaster box, I mentioned the oil when Jesus says, you didn't anoint my head with oil to Simon the Pharisee. This is a different word. That oil, it's not cheap oil, but it's not expensive oil. I mean, even poor people had oil in their house. But this perfume here is myron. It's very expensive. They would wear this little box maybe around there or flask around uh, the neck, and it would be used for, for um, certain situations. She is so caught up with the presence of Jesus, she has lost sight of what other people think about her to the point where she actually lets her hair down, which again is a mark of shame for a woman to do this in public. But she does it right in front of the Pharisees and the whole company. You know, there are certain rabbinic writings we have from the first century that say if a woman lets her hair down in public, the husband can divorce her. That's how bizarre and shameful the culture was on this kind of act. But this woman is completely unguarded. She is having an emotional devotion. She is almost having an emotional breakdown in the presence of Jesus. Now, let me give you a possible reconstruction. You can love Jesus and disagree with what I'm about to say. But I've been reading this passage for about 20 years on and off. I agree with those that think what the woman does here is somewhat accidental, and then she tries to cover it up. 
I don't think it was common practice to walk into somebody's house in the first century and anoint and kiss the feet and perfume all over it. More likely, as historians kind of piece this together for us, she, here's a reconstruction, possible. She walks into the room with the intention of anointing the head of Jesus, similar to what Mary does in John chapter 13. That would be common, especially because Jesus wasn't anointed by Simon when he walked in. So she's been following Jesus for some time. She's overwhelmed with Jesus. And as she goes up to Jesus to kind of anoint his head, she's overcome with emotion and she's crying and her tears are getting all over the feet of Jesus. And so she almost tries to cover it up by wiping the tears with her hair. Provocative and scandalous, probably not premeditated. And she covers up this embarrassing blunder by anointing Jesus' feet with the expensive ointment, perfume. Now, I don't know if it went down that way, but that seems to make sense to me when I read the passage. I think she is so overcome with emotion in the presence of Jesus that she doesn't really know what to do. And the tears are falling, and the hair comes down, and she anoints the feet of Jesus And it's a beautiful symbol of how much she loves the Savior. Now, here comes Simon the Pharisee, verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this was touching him, for she is a sinner. We got a whole sermon here we're skipping over, and it's this. Simon is creating a God in his own image. What Simon the Pharisee is doing is he's saying, I believe, I believe, that God would never associate with a sinner like this. Therefore, Jesus can't be from God. And what Simon the Pharisee is doing is what a lot of Western people do. We judge God or Jesus or Christianity by our own ethical standards. What we do is we kind of put a list on the whiteboard and say, well, I believe A, B, C, D. This is what we believe in modern Western culture. Therefore, Christianity can't be true. Simon the Pharisee is doing the same thing. He's creating a God in his own image, creating a Messiah in his own image. And he is thumb up or thumb downing Jesus based on his own ethics and his own values and his own virtues. I just want to point out, and this is, this is Easter going on here in a moment. You know, in, in first century, nobody would really do that. What you would do is you would enter Christianity through the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, you would come to Jesus based on whether or not you believe he was raised from the dead. Not if his list of virtues lined up with yours. And so a lot of people in the West want to want to investigate Christianity by the virtues of Christianity, their own modern Western virtues. Uh, I encourage us to continue to come uh, the way the first century Christians came through the resurrection. We don't want to create a God in our own image. All right, here's the parable Jesus tells. He talks about a money lender, verse 41, had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. So let's put these amounts in perspective. These are both what we would call middle-class amounts, if we could put it that way. A denarii is probably about a day's wage. It's a little silver coin. 50 denarii, maybe $15,000 today. 500 denarii, maybe $125,000. So think about a payment that would be worth $15,000 or $125,000. Of course, the point in a parable is neither can pay this debt. And if neither can pay their debt, it's going to be catastrophic. When that debt is called by the money lender, either the individual's got to go to prison or there's going to be some kind of slavery that's going to take place. He, she, the family, 
they're going to be sold into slavery in order to pay off the debt. But the lender does the unthinkable, graciously cancels the debt for both. And notice what Jesus says to Simon, verse 43, uh, um, 41. Now, now, which of these will love him more? And look at Simon's answer, verse 43. Simon said, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. See that word suppose? You know what Simon said? He can't even bring himself to admit it. <laughs> this is a begrudging admission. And of course, Jesus here, verse 48, we tie the story up. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table began to say to themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. By the way, there's two scandals taking place when Jesus forgives this woman. Number one is the obvious one, right? I mean, only God can forgive sins. Um, I can tell you what did not happen after this party. Nobody would leave the party saying, wow, that was a really fun visiting rabbi. He gave pithy sayings, you know. Like, Jesus is really bringing people to the edge of the knife. When he starts forgiving sins, he, we're back to this. He's either a liar, lunatic, or he's Lord. And there's not a lot of space in between. If anybody walks up to you in Ballard Park and says to you, your sins are forgiven, you run in the other direction, or they're really forgiving your sins. But you're not going to walk out of Ballard Park saying, that was a really nice person we met today. I think I should introduce my kids to someone like that. You liar, lunatic, or lord. But there's even a bigger scandal taking place. This woman has been abused. This woman is also an abuser. And we don't need to go into first century culture to unpack this too much. But there's a whole cycle of abuse that takes place in these kinds of cultures. No doubt she's been severely abused. No doubt she's passed that on to other people, both men and women, and probably children. Jesus is forgiving her. Does he even have the right to do that? I want you to picture someone that's really hurt you. What if somebody else walks up to them and says, you're forgiven? That would be offensive to you. How do they have the right unless they have that authority from God? And so Jesus here is claiming to be God. Okay, so I want to give just one big lesson here on this story. It's a really good one, I think, and it's this. The verdict of Jesus' love is overruling the opinion of people. The verdict of God's love overrules the verdict of other people. You know, we don't want to admit it, but we have a fear of what people will think about us. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I don't care what this or that person thinks about me. Yeah, but you care what some people think about you. Everybody has a target audience. And there's certain people that we feel like our life is just going to fall apart if they don't approve of what we do or they don't affirm what we do. And life is going to be a lot better if they affirm us and love us and like us. There's some passages that speak to this. I love this story with Saul. Remember what Saul says? He says, I have sinned because I feared the people, so I listened to their voice. Or consider Peter. Peter drew back, separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those that belonged to the circumcision group. Peter wants to be liked by the Jewish people that came from Jerusalem, and so he pulled himself away from the Greeks, all to curry favor with a certain group. Or consider Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple of Jesus. You know what it says? For fear of the Jews. It's not like they're going to kill Joseph of Arimathea, but he's deathly afraid of the opinions and the judgments that will be set over him. So it's not that we fear everyone, but we all have a target audience that we fear. 
And on a sociological and psychological level, this woman has every reason to avoid this courtyard. This courtyard is like a death trap to her socially. You realize that in the first century, the Pharisees in this community, they are the power brokers. They're the ones that call the shots. If you want an easier life, you've got to be in with these power brokers. If you want to be liked by a lot of people, you've got to be in with the Pharisees. Being in with this crowd affords you all sorts of privileges. More jobs are going to come your way. There's a better chance that your son or your daughter is going to marry someone that's going somewhere. You're going to get that strange, euphoric feeling you get when people like you. All this is bound up in being friends with the Pharisees. If you can't be friends with the Pharisees, at the minimum, you don't want to walk into their scorn. The last thing you want to do is be judged by these people. She's a prostitute. She avoids these people all over the city. Make no mistake of it. When she sees them coming, she hides behind buildings. She hides behind trees. She puts her friends out in front. There is no way this woman wants to walk into a courtyard like this. What's amazing here is not just that she anointed the feet of Jesus. What's amazing is she walked into this courtyard to begin with. This woman has exercised a measure of courage because of her faith in Christ. And it's changing her where she now has tunnel vision for Jesus. I don't doubt for a minute she would like to be liked by the power brokers in the city but she's not going to die if it doesn't happen because Jesus is there with her. And as long as Christ is there, she is set free from the verdicts of other people. It's a story, of course, of the woman at the well. Maybe this kind of rings similar. Remember we're told the woman at the well, she goes out and draws water at, at, new, at the heat of the day? Why would she go out at the heat of the day? That doesn't make any sense. She goes out at the heat of the day because that's when everybody else is napping. She doesn't want to see people at the well. Jesus said you have five husbands. That means she's been involved with a number of people in town. No doubt those families have been impacted by her, influenced by her. She's kind of got a lot of scorn and a lot of shame on her. She goes out at the heat of the day when nobody will be there to draw water but her, and she bumps into Jesus. Through an encounter with Christ, she comes to realize he is the Messiah. Do you remember what she does next? She drops her buckets and she runs into the town and starts talking to people. Wait a minute. This is a woman avoiding people at all costs, and now she wants to have conversations with them about Jesus. What's hap- you know what's happening? The truth is setting her free. And I'm sure she'd like to be liked by the people in town, but she's been set free from the verdicts, feeling like she's going to live or die if they don't like her. It's an amazing power God gives us. The verdict of God's love overrules the opinions of people. By the way, I believe this is the music in the background of the Mary and Joseph narrative. You know, like Joseph's got Mary as his espoused, and she's found with child. Yeah, you know the story, but Joseph and his family don't, right? Everybody's thinking the same thing. She's been unfaithful to Joseph. She ha- Joseph has to put her away. If Joseph doesn't put her away... He will bear shame for the rest of his life. Guess who else is going to bear shame for the rest of their life? Joseph's family, if they don't put him away for not putting her away. That's how these first century cultures worked. 
Shame is all over that account. But then the angel comes to Joseph and says, fear not to take Mary as your spouse. What is that? That's the verdict of God's love. Faith in Jesus is breaking the chains of the fear of man. So what goes into a verdict like this? Um, Let me give you three thoughts, three things from the passage that I just find remarkably encouraging uh, that God gives us in Christ. First of all, God receives us by grace and not by works. Christianity 101, God receives us by his grace versus our performance. You notice that in this parable that Jesus tells, one has uh, 50 denarii, the other one 500 denarii. And of course, the point is, neither of them can pay it back. Both of them are in debt. Uh, Let me ask you a question. What's worse, being locked in a prison with 8-inch bars or being locked in a prison with 2-inch bars? What's worse? You're not getting out of either, you know? You're not getting out of either, unless you have a sawzall. But you don't have a sawzall in this story. What's worse? Feeling like you're running out of steam when you're swimming in 300 feet of water or 10 feet of water? It doesn't matter. You're going to be over your head. It's important to understand that nobody in the story can pay back that debt. And that's the point here. That if you're going to come to Christ, you're going to have to come to Christ through grace not through our own moral performance. The woman sees this. And remember, it's a parable. It's not like Simon has sinned less than the woman. It's just a parable. They've both probably sinned, who knows, right? But the point to appreciate, the woman sees the debt that she owes God, and she puts her faith in Jesus, but Simon refuses to do it. And the point here that Jesus is making is this. Simon, what's keeping you from coming to faith is those damnable good works you keep trusting in. They're not helping you. Simon, you're a Pharisee. You do all this religious stuff, and therefore it blinds you from seeing how much in debt you really are because of the sin and your need of forgiveness. The woman's need is so obvious and so evident. Simon seems on the surface to be less so, but both are in desperate need of God's grace. It's back to the story of two acorns, right? Two acorns. Both acorns have the potential to grow into an oak tree. One could fall into the mud and grow into that oak tree. Got an example across the street. There's mud right there. Another one may just fall on the ground and it may grow into a little tree. Or it may not get the nutrition and it might die out. But in that acorn is all the same potential. And the heart of Simon and the heart of the woman, both are broken before God, but one sees it and one doesn't. Number two. We experience Jesus' love versus his indifference. We experience God's love versus indifference. And sacrificial love is changing this woman's life, changing this woman's life. Notice that the love doesn't save her. I'm going to say something about this in a minute. Verse 50, it says, your faith has saved you. But boy, that love is a demonstration. The the love that she is experiencing from Jesus it's changing her heart to the point where she is set free from the verdicts of other people. In other words, it's transforming her from the inside out. I love that scene in Les Mis. Uh, if you've seen Les Mis or you're familiar with the story, Jean Valjean is on the streets and uh, he's scrounging for food and water and shelter and he goes into the priest's house. Remember this? He 
He's bitter. He's angry. He's in desperation. The priest welcomes him in. And no doubt Valjean's meal of bread and wine he has with the priest is kind of a symbol of the body and blood of Christ. And after some time, Jean Valjean, the, the criminal there, he, he steals silver plates. He steals silverware from the priest, the one who has helped him. And he runs out of the house. He's caught by the police and he's brought back. And in the story, there they are. The, 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 the policeman has Jean Valjean. And, and there's the, the, uh, the policeman has him. And the priest is at the door. And the priest can make a decision. He can have Jean Valjean thrown in prison for the rest of his life or he can set him free. Remember what he does? He says right in front of the policeman, ah, you forgot the candlesticks. And he takes the candlesticks and gives them to Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean can't believe this. He belongs in prison. But this priest has shown him such amazing grace. And here's the line from the play. Valjean says to the priest, you are good. You don't despise me. You take me into your house. You light your candles for me. And I haven't hid from you where I come from. Oh, how miserable I am. The priest touches his hand gently, says, You need not tell me who you are. This is not my house. This is the house of Christ. It does not ask any comer whether he has a name, but whether he has an affliction. You are suffering. You are hungry. You are thirsty. You are welcome. Your name is my brother. And that act of grace, this is where the play bears it, the act of grace and love shown by the priest is going to transform Jean Valjean for the rest of his life. He is going to reach out and start loving and taking care of other people, even at his own expense. The rope is around the neck of Simon, and the rope is around the neck of the woman. Jesus is looking to free them from this penalty. And he does that for the woman because she recognizes that need. Number three, we have God's forgiveness versus God's contempt. God's forgiveness versus God's contempt. And in the story, as we said, the woman is not earning Jesus' favor. She's being forgiven, and that's going to change her life. Great part of this. By the way, verse 48 says, your sins are forgiven. Notice the forgiveness kind of is explained by say, verse 50, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now what I love about these verses, let me talk about forgiveness just for a moment. First of all, forgiveness is an event, it's not a process. There's a lot of processes taking place here. I don't doubt the woman's been following Jesus, at least for a little while. And when he leaves the house, I'm going to assume the woman followed him there. There's the anointing of the feet. Luke explains a process here. But the process is not saving her. Forgiveness is an event. The tense here in the original language, it's an interesting tense. It's, it's a kind of tense where it's a one-time act with continuing influence. Like if you adopt a child, that's an event, but that's an event that's going to change your life. If you get married, it's not a process. It's an event. It's an event that changes your life. The forgiveness the woman experiences here is like throwing a rock into the water with a big splash and all the ripples go out. She is living under the sky of grace because of the event of forgiveness that's taken place in her life. There's a process, but she's forgiven by grace. And again, I actually think Luke is falling all over himself to make sure we don't misunderstand this passage. If you're not careful... You're going to think her love saved her. 
you're going to think anointing the feet of Jesus saved her. You might even think her courage to kind of walk into the Pharisee courtyard saved her. Luke in the last verse is going to make this perfectly clear. Those things are evidence of faith. Your faith has saved you. She is saved by faith in Christ, forgiven by faith in Christ. These other things are the works that accompany that faith. So in the gospel, Jesus here, what he's doing is taking his, her shame, and he takes our shame. So what does it mean when Jesus receives her worship and tells her to go in peace? Now, you that have studied this, you know that in the first century, everything in the first century is dominated by shame and honor. You don't allow yourself to be shamed, and you can't associate with shameful people. If you associate with shameful people, you yourself are part of that shameful class. That's how it worked in the first century. So I want you to picture this story. Put yourself in, in, in her shoes. Every person in a room knows that she's a sinner in this regard, right? And yet she walks into the room because of her faith and because her love for Christ is so great. She goes down and anoints the feet of Jesus. Now Jesus makes a decision. He receives the worship and defends her before the Pharisees. And I can tell you what happened when Jesus did that. No longer is the shame on the woman. The shame is now on who? It's on the Savior. And you can even see it in the passage. No longer does Simon looking at the woman. He's now looking at Jesus going, I cannot believe he just did that. You know what Jesus is doing in this story? The same thing he's been doing in Luke now for several chapters. He took on the shame of the leper. He took on the shame of the dead. When he touched the casket, he is now taking on the shame of the woman. When the prodigal father runs out to meet the prodigal son, and the prodigal son is about to get scorned by everyone in the village, I can assure you when the prodigal father runs out to meet him, nobody's thinking about the son anymore. The father is taking a humiliating, shameful posture to receive the son. Jesus here is taking the shame of the woman. And that's exactly what he does for us. No longer do we have to feel the shame of sin. No longer do we have to feel the shame of anybody. For Christ has taken that for us on the cross and in the resurrection. Simon says this, If Jesus knew who this woman was, he'd never let her touch him. The irony is Jesus not only knows who Simon is, he knows this woman completely. And he demonstrates that she is completely known and completely loved at the same time. I challenge you to find anybody in this world that can say that about you. If they completely knew you, they would not completely love you. You know this. If they completely loved you, they would not completely know you. But in Jesus, the woman is finding herself completely known and completely loved for the first time in her life by anyone. You say, how can she walk into a courtyard with all those Pharisees? They're going to heap scorn on her, and they do. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, thank you for your love and your care for us. When Jesus died on a cross, he took a humiliating, shameful posture for us. Even allowing his clothes to be stripped, he hung there naked. He endured scorn and he endured shame, not because he deserved that, but because we deserve that. He stands in our place 
And in Christ, all of our shame and our sin is transferred to him. I pray, Lord, you would free us from the verdicts of other people. Down in our hearts, we we have to admit this is true. We don't desire everybody's applause and approval, but we all have a target audience. We don't want everyone to like us, but boy, there are some people we will just die if we don't have their approval. Break those chains and set us free. And I pray to help us to walk worthy of Christ. Thank you for the love we have in Jesus. We are completely known and completely loved. There is no one else in the world that it can be said of than Jesus Christ. He knows us and he loves us. And no matter what happens, none can pluck us out of your hand. May the verdict of God's love set us free today. In Jesus' name, amen.